This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel, and it's the day before a new U.S. president is inaugurated. Joe Biden will be at the helm of our most important trade relationship, uh, our most important relationship with a foreign country altogether. And on the weekend, we learned that canceling the Keystone XL pipeline is such a big priority for him that he intends to do that on day one. We'll drill down on that. And turning to domestic politics on the weekend, conservative leader Aaron O'Toole put out a lengthy statement trumpeting his moderate stands on a whole variety of issues like abortion and gay rights. It was in response he said to liberals trying to paint him as a far-right person. And then last night we learned, as you heard in Bob's news, that he wants to expel Derek Sloan, ostensibly for accepting a donation from a known white supremacist. And in the meantime, Canada's vaccine shipments are cut back more than other countries. And Doug Ford's popularity is down, though it's still higher than it was before the pandemic. So let me give the numbers out again. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Sousa, former Minister of Finance for Ontario and Liberal MPP for Mississauga South, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi there. Good afternoon. Okay, let us begin with Charles. Uh, We're getting a new U.S. president tomorrow. Uh, What's the reaction to that? And, and, my question with this pipeline business, uh, there's a lot of reaction with, uh, you know, shock and surprise. We're going to make sure they talk to us. But we've known for a long time that that this is what he wanted to do to cancel this. Have we not? Yes. I mean, it's not surprising that this is going to take place. I mean, he's made that known for over time. It's unfortunate, mind you, because these are huge uh, economic uh, uh, benefit for Canada, for our Canadian producers and investors and uh, the workforce, high-paying, blue-collar jobs as well. Um, and the U.S. has quite a surplus of oil, and they've already done quite a bit in terms of their economic activity. It's going to hurt us. Mind you, our price point on our tar sands are more expensive, so that's also a bit more risk for Canada. But um, it is unfortunate. It's, it's, there's an environmental issue here, of course, that we've known for, for some time. Um you know, the question is, can the industry change? Can they do other things as opposed to what is being proposed uh, with the Keystone Pipeline? But I don't see it. This is a little bit, this is unfortunate for, for Canada and for Alberta especially. Karen, uh, again, uh, you know, the, everyone's saying we're, we're going to make sure they see our point of view on this. Uh, is, I think that's just a bit of bluster. Oh, I agree with you entirely. And, uh, and I agree with Charles. You know, whether or not the project has merit is 
immaterial. This is politics. And probably the safest political thing that Biden can do is cancel the pipeline. And, you know, with that, he'll buy some time with the environmentalists, the more left-leaning members of his uh, of, of the party. And, um, it, you know, it doesn't matter what we call it. It's the Keystone Pipeline, and it will be, and it will be rejected by his party. So he really doesn't have any choice, to be candid, but to cancel it. And and uh, Karen, but, but Biden's coming in, Trump is out, uh, presumably. <clears throat> Excuse me, um, all parties are pretty happy about that. <laughs> I think all parties are pretty happy about that. <laughs> and you know what? I don't want to say that if the pipeline is is the only casualty in this, then it's worth it. But because I I don't want to minimize the impact it is going to have in the western provinces, and the fact that it actually can be made to be zero emission and it can be environmentally improved. Uh, the merits of the project aside, you know it is it's one of the casualties, and uh, it's just one of the things we're going to have to adjust to. Okay. John, uh, I was actually in touch with you on the weekend when I saw this uh, statement by Aaron O'Toole, and I thought it was, I don't know, a little preemptive. I, I gather liberals have been trying to paint him or his faction as, as far right, but I don't think that's permeated any kind of general view of him. Uh, and there was this, you know, the making a, a, a deal out of um, uh, Candace Bergen posing in a MAGA hat at some point. So what do you think is behind this uh, fairly extraordinary statement of how moderate he is? Well, I think, Libby, that, you know, and, and both Charles and Cameron will know this well, and that is there's an old political strategy uh, that, you know, you uh, sort of define your opponents before before they define themselves. Uh, and then, you know, of course, the liberals have always, and it's and it's a standard thing that the liberals, and, and quite frankly, some of the opposition do to the conservatives, which is always to try to paint them in this broad brush as as right wing or or hidden agendas. You know, I I've heard the, the term as a conservative, I've heard the term hidden agenda dating back to Brian Mulroney, Mike Harris, Stephen Harper. Any conservative leader who comes in uh, gets gets automatically painted as well. They've got a hidden agenda. They're they're on the extreme right wing and and stuff like that. And then, like every other party, there are probably certain elements within the party that are that. And, and every leader tries to to minimize that and, and tries to obviously keep an open tent for everybody. But there are extremes and there are issues and, and there are uh, levels of tolerance that they'll take and not take. And I think what what Aaron was trying to do and what he has done was, as he saw the liberals were trying to ramp up that very, you know, attempt to try to define him in this way. And he came up with a letter that basically said, look, my whole life, I've been a, you know, uh, I've served in the army. Uh, I've served, you know, in the Canadian forces as a, as a, as a helicopter pilot. I've, I've been a sort of a, a suburban, you know, middle class family guy, you know, and, and I think he wanted to get that message out before the liberals kept trying to attempt to do that. So I think it was a counter to to what the liberals are trying to do to define them a certain way. Uh, obviously, I think it, it's something that, you know, you got to get out there and causes uh, debate and discussion, which I think is what Aaron wants. And, and, and quite frankly, hopefully it'll put it to bed so that when there's an election coming, and, and we all agree that there probably likely will be an election this year, um, you know, he's he's already addressed that issue in a very in a very strong and, and passionate manner. Uh, and uh, John, on uh, the Derek Sloan thing, I mean, he he wants to expel Sloan ostensibly for taking one hundred and thirty one dollars from this known white supremacist. Sloan says he's going to fight that he didn't know that this was the guy, and as soon as he found out 
<clears throat> he has to send the money back. I mean, is that just an excuse to uh, get this guy out of the party? And because uh, there are a lot of social conservatives in the conservative party, as I'm sure I don't have to tell you. Well, it's not so much him being a social conservative. There's no question. And, and liberals have social conservatives in their caucus as well, you know, and, and, uh, and have, and, and, you know, so there's not an issue with respect to whether or not you believe a certain thing on social conservatism. You know, as the leader of the party, or quite frankly, any party, you make the decision whether or not you want to address that issue or not. Mike Harris did when he was premier. Stephen Harper did. He said, look, I'll allow debate and, and freedom of speech within the caucus on, on issues uh, of, of moral conscience and others. But let me be clear, as a leader, I will not address the issue. I will not change abortion laws or, or implement abortion laws or, or what have you. So, you know, and again, all the, all the conservative leaders, you know, have said that because, of course, that's the first question they get asked. Uh, and Aaron O'Toole is no different. And he made that very abundantly clear. In fact, I think his first speech when he was leader was that he was not going to change that and that he himself considered himself a pro-choice uh, leader. So having said that, sure, there are some in caucus that might have that view. But I think this was a problem not so much with his social conservative view. But it was a, it was a sense that there was a white supremacist or a white nationalist or an alleged white nationalist or this from person who uh, everybody is uh, you know is is a white nationalist who gave money to his uh, to his campaign uh, and that's not acceptable and I think that you know we've seen that before where I think Kelly Leach when she was running as leader of the Conservatives back when Andrew Scheer became leader. Um, I think I think this person gave money to her campaign and they automatically you know recognized it and sent the money back. Uh, and I think the fact that that Derek Sloan didn't, or he said that he just or it was going to, uh, I think caused the problem. But I also I think it was exasperated Libby by the fact that it came on the uh, sort of on the heels of this letter that that uh, Aaron O'Toole just sent out about him, um, you know, being a moderate and, and not accepting uh, racist and uh, toes and uh, disavowing what's happened in the Capitol Hill as. Uh, you know, in Washington. And I think that there was no other choice but to say, okay, well, look, at if I'm going to stick to that, and if my, if my words mean something, here's an example of somebody that might have transgressed on this and allowed for a, for a white nationalist to give money to a campaign. So therefore, he's going through the process, and, and to his credit, he's, he's instilling the Reform Act, which, which will allow for a caucus debate and a caucus decision whether or not to expel um, uh, Derek Sloan, and that'll likely happen probably tomorrow or on Friday. So there is a process in place, but I thought he did the right thing by at least instigating that process. Charles, uh, are those things you think uh, getting him election ready in the meantime, Trudeau's and other politicians' favorability ratings are falling because we're, we're having quite a fiasco over this vaccine rollout? Well, the vaccine is uh, certainly... A problem now with the delays, but further to John's point in regards to painting of a leader and the issue with the white supremacists and other matters pertaining to the Conservative Party, the fact is that progressive nature of the Conservative Party is missing since they changed their name and made the amalgamation and so forth. So there's been some sacrifices. John, we need more of you uh, in that party to bring back <laughs> some of that progressive nature. In fact, the, I believe to be the Canadian nature. I mean, there's extremists on both sides of the spectrum. And oftentimes they seem to meet in the same place at the back end, right? Be it a fascist or a communist or be it white supremacists or individuals that are playing in extreme sides of the spectrum at the detriment of the party and of Canadians. Respect and that crazy. And I'm, I feel saddened by that, that it still exists. I, I appreciate the work that's being done by some of the leaders to try to curb that activity. 
But John, the Conservative Party has the majority, if not all, of those individuals fighting that cause to this day. And uh, Liberals, on the other hand, they make uh, their mistakes too, and we're trying desperately to try to be more moderate. And I think that's what the majority of Canadians are. Um, and when it comes to vaccines, I don't know, Libby, we, uh, we have a problem. And I don't know where AstraZeneca is on this. I know Pfizer is delayed. Moderna has a number of them coming out, which are easier to transport. But we have other, uh, other vaccines available to the market. And why they're not existing and why we don't have them as of now, it concerns me. Well, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, the AstraZeneca. What's holding it up? I, there, there have been a huge number of vaccinations with it in Britain already. So I don't know, Karen, what's holding it up here. But there, there's a point that I want to make about this vaccine rollout. And uh, tell me if I'm off base here, but. I think that the delay by Pfizer is actually working in the government's fa- favor because if you think back to what they announced, they keep saying we've, we've ordered so many doses, but there was never any plan or, or any order to have early doses. They from the get go said they weren't even getting to people who are 80 or over until the end of March or April, which I hear from those people a lot, and they're not happy about. So we were never getting to them anytime soon. Uh, and it seems that even in the, the, you know, the order that we had planned, it got messed up and people, you know, got vaccines out of turn, Karen. So I think that be, being able to blame it on Pfizer is actually good for them. Yeah, I, I don't. I can I can see the logic in that, but but I, I don't think the public sees it that way. To be candid, um, because because there have been so many missteps with respect to the vaccine rollout delivery of the vaccine rollout. Um, you know, you know, again, the, the closing of the clinics over the holidays, uh, then all the no shows, and then people scrambling to get people vaccinated before the vaccine expires uh, its shelf life, and then you know, opening up the convention center. Why was that done? Opening up the convention center to vaccinate 250 people a day only to close it two days later? So, you know, I I think that if it had been strategically communicated in a way, look, we're ready to go, we're just waiting for vaccines, then I think the government would be better able to lay the blame at the vaccine distributors. But all the missteps from the federal level down to the provincial level create in the public a big question mark of, like, what are you guys doing over there? You know, you know, like, what is going on? I've, I've got to tell you, when it comes to the convention center, I'm sorry, that's a photo op because it is the exact same setup that they have for the regular flu vaccine. And uh, John Tory's running around saying it's proof of concept. Uh, you know, what? what do you mean? You, you, what it you was mean? open two months ago to, to give flu vaccines. And by the way, people who signed up that way had to wait a lot longer than anybody who went to a pharmacy. So, right, it gets a head scratcher. Yeah. And so, you know, I think, and, and then I'll, you know, pass the mic, but, you know, I, I think there was a moment in time where the government could have capitalized on that to open the convention center to say, hey, listen, we're ready as soon as the vaccine gets here. Like, that may have been that opportunity to pivot and say, look, it's not our fault. But just the way that it's been managed, it's, it's just a head scratcher. <laughs> John, are, are you trying to jump in there? 
<laughs> no, I was just, I was just uh, <laughs> sort of agreeing to what Karen was saying, or at least admiring her, her comments about this, uh, this issue, because you know what, and I, and I, and and she's right about a lot of that, a lot of that, and that is, you know, with respect to the the miscommunication on this, and and I think that a lot of this too. Uh, you know, it speaks to governments at all levels tripping over themselves to try to put out good stories. Nobody wants to be the leader uh, at whatever level, uh, you know, that doesn't have the good news when it comes to vaccines because there's so much hope and anticipation uh, that 2021 was going to be the year of, of hope and opportunity and, and the fact that there was going to be a vaccine and, and the, the, the ugliness of 2020 was over and, and sort of nobody wanted to be, you know, wanted to start the year off with any sort of significant bad news. And we saw that right from the federal government down where, you know, at one point the prime minister and some of his cabinet ministers were, were, were just, you know, saying the things about when the vaccine was going to come and how many people, how many people were going to get vaccinated by when. And there was this mass confusion with respect to the vaccines coming or not coming. And then finally, the prime minister, to his credit, said, you know, I've got vaccines. I've cut deals with all the companies. We've got orders coming in because everybody wanted to have, you know, the, the site or the photo op of, of somebody being injected by the, uh, by, by the, with the vaccine before the end of 2020. But then we find out, well, there wasn't enough vaccine orders and that, that, that when they gave them out to the provinces, by the time they distributed to the provinces, they only had so many. And given the fact that Pfizer is so darn complicated that you need it to be frozen a certain, a certain temperature and it's a two dose by, you know, over certain periods of time, it became even more complicated. Uh, and that's why there was talk about holding back on the second dose and all this kind of stuff. So it speaks to what Karen was saying about the confusion and the mixed messaging uh, in the fact that, quite frankly, all politicians, especially now, want to make sure that they get out with some good news. So announcing the, the, the convention center as a space uh, for vaccine gives people the hope that, OK, well, at least we've got that planned. Right. So that's the kind of stuff I think that's happening. And, 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 and you know, until this gets resolved and we're seeing uh, now that Pfizer's put a delay on it, I think it's causing huge amounts of concern now with respect to some of the anticipated, you know, vaccines, uh, dispensing that was going to happen that now has to be put on hold. Okay, well, Charles, I mean, I keep going back. I think the government messed up on the whole vaccine procurement because they came late to the party. And I think that for all their trumpeting, we've got more doses per capita than any other country. They were too late to get early doses. Am I wrong? Well, I know they were in negotiations with all of them, and they have been for some time. The ministers and uh, negotiating behind the scenes uh, prior to publicizing that they were doing so. Uh, obviously, we don't have enough dosage, and uh, everyone's saying that uh, someone else is getting more than we are. But everybody, but that's not the case. Apparently, I I, I, I feel terrible about um, the lack of availability that that exists for. Not just the, the ones that are most vulnerable seem to be in, in having difficulties with some of the dosage as well. So I don't really know how the priority should be made. But, you know, for, for us to blame the Canadian government when other governments are also finding themselves in the same predicament, which I, I mean, there, there's, there's, there's a production problem. Uh, I, I I don't know. I mean, you know, I look at uh, by the time we got our deals, uh, other countries you know, had it sewn up. We've seen, you know, Israel had a huge number of, of deals and we've seen the list of countries and I think we're 12th. Uh, I mean, you know, maybe 12th isn't so bad. There are a lot of countries in the world, but, you know, 
If the United well, States has more, uh, you know, they have more vaccine than we do. Yeah, and this is this is, a, this is certainly a problem when we have agreements in place, negotiations are made over a period of time. Were we the first or the second or third of the 12 points to make those negotiations? I'm not sure of that. What I do know, or what you all know, is that we have deals and they're not being procured or they're not being fulfilled. And, um, you know, uh, had we moved quicker or sooner, I'm not sure if that's the problem. I think they did. I think they moved all pretty much in tandem. Uh, Pfizer gave preference to the U.K. and the United States right away. Canada was immediately there. But um, what more could they have done in regret negotiating those opportunities? I think they did what they had to do. The production of, of the vaccines is the problem. And, of course, distribution of those vaccines is also a problem in Canada. Prioritizing them in Ontario has been an issue. Um, but I, 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 can't, I can't say that they weren't doing the negotiations because obviously they were. Karen. Yeah, well, I think all of those are problems that you've identified. But there's another big problem staring us in the face in that from, a, from someone who has their business being shut down right now is that everybody was hopeful that the uh, introduction of the vaccine would help reopen the economy. And now in Ontario, we're in this horrible place where parts of the economy continue to be shut down, the schools continue to be closed, and the vaccine that we thought was coming is not. And so we hear about the numbers, we watch the numbers, we watch the emergency rooms, but we don't actually have any sense of, is the plan to shut us down until the vaccines arrive? Because if that's the plan, that's a very alarming plan for someone who's shut down. Well, I think the plan is to shut us down until the caseload goes down. And, and if that's the case, then, then that's not being communicated. And so I'm, you know, with my building being closed, I don't have any sense of February 12th. Is that the date when the kids go back to school? Or if I've heard that the kids might not even go back to school at all because there's a movement to stop that from happening. And so from, from the, the, the businesses that are shut down that were had such hope in the arrival of the vaccine, that hope is now farther out. And so what between now and then can we hope for? Well, again, Karen, you know, my uh, my take on, you know, even when we had the the, uh, the better uh, estimation of the vaccine rollout, that most people were not going to be vaccinated till the second or the third phase. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm I worried about people who are over 80. So until the fall. But so I, I hope that's, that's not the plan is to keep us all closed till the fall. Well, I don't know. I I think the the plan. Uh, my understanding of it is they're going to keep us all closed till till we start seeing a drop in the number of cases. Yeah, John. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I I think look, you know, you, we've seen the struggles not only with this premier with respect to the balance between health and, and the economy, uh, but you know, even the prime minister mentions it, and other premiers um, across Canada are, are struggling as well uh, in some way, shape, or form. So I do think that. You know, there was there was hope that if you can get the long term care and the first responders and the healthcare officials, you know, vaccinated by by March, uh, and and that this closed the shutdown that 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 is happening in varying forms across the country, but certainly in Ontario, you know, that if by by mid February we're seeing a bit of a drop in numbers, uh, that they would reevaluate certain things, and and again, it's supposed to be this sort of simultaneous stream of vaccinations being being dispensed to the to the those that need it the most whilst everybody else was shut down and that combined it'd be some sort of you know good news and and, and a bit of more re- reopening sort of starting in march 
because I think everybody's been clear, and I think this Pfizer delay now is causing more problems because, you know, as we're watching, as we're waiting to see Johnson & Johnson and others and Moderna coming into play, um, you know, the, the plan was, as it was back in December and January, everybody said that we were going to get the, the majority of Canadians <clears throat> were going to be vaccinated by the fall. Uh, it was their prediction. And some saying, well, maybe June, July or whatever. But we're talking at least the second half or third quarter of the year. Uh, before, you know, that, that, and then we don't know, hopefully that by then there's no other mutant strain that's coming across that might cause us problems. But I think that was a general plan. Yeah, the, the plan was September. You know, when I say July, August, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of people who are younger than me who are, you know, um, <laughs> Well, we're also talking about herd immunity, too, Libby, in some cases, that if enough people get vaccinated or or have had COVID but recovered, there might be some herd immunity that might also take take into the equation. You need 70 percent, at least 70, 80, 90 percent for that. Uh, Charles, um, so there there was a lot of talk about a a spring election. Generally speaking, the prime minister's ratings have been good. But but, you know, uh, and I think it's inevitable that as this thing continues, ratings are going down. Do you think uh, do you think that's still a likelihood? Um, I know they're all saying they don't want one. I believe Aaron O'Toole <laughs> right. is saying he would like to see a change. Obviously, he's uh, he's fighting for, uh, but he's. I'm not sure they're prepared. Obviously, that that's a problem for the opposition too. So I'm not sure the appetite exists, and I'm not sure the public really wants one. Um, they all have to be prepared for it, and that distracts from the more immediate issue, which is, you know, fighting this 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 virus, making sure that we put our economy back instead, and and avoiding some of the drama that exists when it comes to political discussions. And I don't think there's an appetite by the public to hear any more of that. I mean, the United States sort of occupies a lot of our oxygen already, so I don't think they want to deal with that at at this point. Okay, uh, we're almost out of time. Um, uh, Just before we go for a few seconds each, uh, um, what are you expecting tomorrow? Is it, uh, you know, the, the, the Washington is like an armed camp, um, we just heard in Bob's news that they have not yet uncovered or have not uncovered any plots against Biden. Is is this a fabulous new era or what? Um, I'll start with you by just by saying, look, and I, I hope that it is a peaceful uh, transition. I hope that there's no uh, that that all the precautions that they've taken, rightly so, with with the with the National Guard and 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 all of the hyped, hyped up intelligence gathering is is going to is going to pay off and no one's going to cause any problems i think it's going to be an important uh chapter for the u.s uh, as they turn the page and 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 move forward so i think uh, i think hopefully um and also i've always i've witnessed every inauguration uh, that i can remember it's it's, a, it's an amazing thing to see that kind of transition of power especially uh in the united states so i'm hoping to be able to see that again uh, tomorrow karen yeah, I, I think, um, you know, to, to John's point, I, I think it will be a relatively low-key event and uh, probably a little anticlimactic given that the stakes are so high. Um, but I think if, if that's how it unfolds, I think that will be the best outcome we can hope for. And Charles? Yeah, I, I think it's not going to be a big event. I mean, obviously, it's going to be a low-attended event for obvious reasons. The biggest challenge for Biden and the new team will be one around unity and trying to bring the countries together and trying to minimize some of uh, the extremist points that have been occurring. I think the biggest strength for Biden, frankly, is the Trump antics. The antics that Trump has done in the recent weeks will actually work in their favor. Unfortunately, um, there's a lot of work to be done down there, and uh, I'm hopeful it'll be 
uh, good inauguration, and then going from there, it's, it's great. It's going to be low-key, I believe. Okay, and uh, inevitable, inevitably uh, probably less entertaining <laughs> than the antics <laughs> that we've seen. That we've might seen. be a good thing for the first time, actually. It'll be- <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, they're even doing late talk shows, you know, and the late night talk shows, what are they, they going to use? From here on well, exactly. And <laughs> CNN and and uh, all and Fox. We'll see. Anyway, thank you so much, Karen Stintz, John Capobianco and Charles Souza. We will see you soon. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks. Thank you. All the best. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.